Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have audio from our service on Sunday, November 27th. This is part four in our series on the Gospel of John. This one is called Jesus, Lamb of God. We're going to look at a phrase that is used by John the Baptist to describe Jesus and try to get at what John the Baptist meant by it and also the implications for us as followers of Jesus. Also, just a quick reminder that in a few weeks, we will be having our Christmas Eve services at North Shore Vineyard. They will be held at 4 and 5.30 p.m. If you've never been out to our Christmas Eve services, we have a great time, lots of food and music, and it's kind of an all-ages service. So if you're around Covington for the holidays, come check it out. Christmas Eve services will take the place of our regularly scheduled Sunday services because we won't have church on Christmas Day. So hope to see you then. Mark your calendars. Now, let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. John 1, 29. The next day, John, this would be John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. How many of y'all had a great Thanksgiving this last week? How many of y'all ate way too much food? Saw way too much football? No, nobody saw too much football. Okay, we don't have that problem here at this church. Uh, I had a great Thanksgiving. I I went up to my my dad's house up in East Texas, and we did a lot of nothing for a few days. And it's it's nice to have a vacation that you don't need a vacation to recover from, you know. And so we certainly had a good time. But when it comes to the kind of meaning of Thanksgiving, you know, the whole being thankful thing, I have to say that we have a new tradition in our family that kind of surpasses Thanksgiving. Uh, It was a tradition we started a a year ago called God Takes Care of the Schroeder's Day. You want to hear about this holiday? My my name is Crispin Schroeder, by the way, for those of y'all that are new. My last name is Schroeder. So we we started a a family holiday last year, last November 1st, called God Takes Care of the Schroeder's Day. Now, it's got kind of a clunky name. You know, I wish we could come up with a, a, a hipper name of it, but the name kind of at least describes what it is. If you're new to this church or if you've come, you know, just in the last six or eight months, you probably don't know uh, some of the, the details of our first year. This this church, we're going to celebrate our second year anniversary in January. And uh, whoop, whoop, we're going to have cake and everything too. So, yes. What? I don't know. I guess we'll have to, as a church, we'll have two candles and lots of people. Got, it's gonna be, nobody's going to want to eat that cake afterwards. <laughs> Uh, but 
when we launched out to, to plant this church, everything was going great for the first six or seven months. And then all of a sudden, uh, on uh, July 15th of 2010, I had a heart attack. And uh, it wasn't like anything I saw coming. I uh, didn't have heart disease in my family. I was exercising regularly. And age 37, I had a heart attack. And it was the kind of heart attack, the more I find out about it, most people die within a matter of minutes. It was called a widowmaker heart attack. And uh, it, they call it that affectionate name because it usually makes a, a widow uh, out of your spouse. But I got to the hospital. They put a stent in my heart and uh, were able to clear out the blockage and stuff. And so I was happy to be alive. That was really great news. Um, but then about a month later, we get something in the mail that almost gave me another heart attack. We got the bill. <laughs> it was like $93,000. Now, before we had launched out into church planning, I'd been on staff with the, the Vineyard Church on the South Shore, and we actually had health insurance and, and benefits, and that was cool. But launching out to do a new church... Uh, I was the only employee of North Shore Vineyard Church, and we couldn't get a group insurance policy. We'd been trying for months to get insurance, and nobody would accept us. So uh, when the heart attack happened, we didn't have insurance. So we were looking at $93,000 that we had to pay back, and I was like, oh, my gosh, we're, we're just never going to do this. This is just depressing. I, I, I wish they would have given me a, a letter like two weeks before we got that one that said, hey, in a couple of weeks, you're going to get something from us. Take a shot of whiskey before you read it and, uh, you know, calm down. No. Uh, and, and Dina, you know, I, I started kind of getting depressed right off the bat. I'm like, oh my gosh. And she's like, why are you getting depressed about this? There's, this isn't like even in the ballpark of anything we could begin to pay off. This is like, <laughs> she's like, you know, God's got to take care of this one or, or we're, we're, we're dead. And so, I was really bummed because we tried so many years to, to get out of debt and paying off student loans, paying off credit cards, paying off the cars, and we're trying to live within our means, and then it's like, wow, after all those years of trying to do the right thing, and now it's just like, bam, we're, there's no way to make it out. And so I, I talked to the financial counselor over at St. Tammany Hospital, and, and it was funny the, the day that I got the bill because she was having to counsel a pastor on, on you know, it's okay, God's got this. <laughs> so she was like, look, you're in the right line of work. You know, I, I think God's going to take care of this for you. You just, you know, don't, don't get too depressed or anything. I'm like, okay, all right. And so she said, we have a program you can apply for that, that might write off some of the costs. So I was like, okay, give me the information. So I, I, I filled out all the paperwork for that. And then, you know, I, I wrote this letter that I spent like all day writing this letter, imagining that, that there was some committee that, that met together up in the hospital that they would, they would read my heartfelt plea for, for mercy, and, and they would all go, oh, yes, this is a worthy case. We'll have mercy on him. And I, I turn in all my paperwork with the letter and to this lady, and she said, oh, that's a, that's a beautiful letter you wrote. I'll go ahead and include that. But she's like, this, it's mainly done by a computer program. It's <laughs> like, he doesn't read, does he? And uh, she began to crunch the numbers kind of based on our income and all this stuff and, and, and figured out that you know, probably the best we could hope for them riding off is going to be 40 or 50%, which while we would be grateful for that, it was still going to be a big chunk of money that we would, at the rate we're paying off student loans, it would take us the rest of our life to <laughs> finally take care of. And so we finally, over the next few weeks, just kind of said, well, you know, may, maybe we won't, maybe we'll just rent for a long time. That's okay. We're, we're cool with that. We can do that. And uh, maybe some of the plans that we'd had for other things, we'll just put those on hold and, uh, but one day, 
actually November 1st last year, I, I got a call from St. Tammany Hospital, and she said, well, I, I've got good news for you. She said, the hospital has agreed to write off 100% of what you owed. I'm like, does this thing work? What, what did you just say? You know, I, I, it was not even in the ballpark of my ex, you know, expectations. And she said, no, they, they've, they've agreed to totally write off the bill. And she's like, that, that, that doesn't, ha- I work here. I'm in this industry. She's like, that doesn't happen. I don't know what happened. The robot program learned how to read. <laughs> and so I get off the phone, and I'm like dancing around the room because I feel like I've not only cheated death, I've won the lottery. I felt like, you know, it's like two amazing miracles in the, in the, in the period of, of, of two months, you know, that I'm alive and kicking from a heart attack that kills most people, and the balance of this debt was written off. And so that day, I, I, I don't know if you've ever been blessed like in such a major way, you just don't even know how to respond. That's kind of where I was. I was like, who do I thank? Do I thank this computer program? Do I thank the hospital? I, I certainly want to thank God, but I don't even know how to thank God. I, I, like, what can I do to show my gratitude? <laughs> and I felt like God put on my heart just the, the kind of what the children of Israel would do in the Old Testament. They were they would observe these festivals throughout the year, one of them being Passover. And Passover was this, this festival that commemorated when God had heard their cries. Heard their cries. That, that was, we planned that. Uh, God heard their cries and delivered them from slavery by, by this Passover meal. That was kind of the defining moment, you know, where the angel of death is passing through Egypt. And anywhere where he didn't see blood on the doorpost of the home, the firstborn were taken. So nobody died of all the children of Israel, but there was death in all the households of Egypt. And that was the final miracle that began to set them free and, and, and launch them out. And God tells them... Keep this feast, keep this festival every year from this point on to remember how I heard your cries and how I delivered you. And so that day I was like, well, I think the way that we need to celebrate this God, you know, what God has done is to, to start a new family holiday. It'll be kind of our small version of Thanksgiving uh, where we just reflect on how God has taken care of us. So that night we, we said, thus concludes the, the first annual God takes care of the Schroeder's Day, and, and so we sat around, we went out to dinner, and we, we, we pulled out the Bible, and I began to read to my family some scriptures that were, I'm, I'm kind of hot in here, y'all? Okay. Um, I began to, to we, we recounted as a family kind of our story on, on how we even launched out into to church planting. Now, at that time, my daughter Tevia, when we first decided to church plant, she was like 10 years old. She was not a big fan of church planning. She was like, I got all my friends. She had like a bigger social life at 10 years old than, than I've ever had. Uh, <laughs> and she was like, I don't want to leave all my friends. Yeah. You know, she was just really sad. And, and I got out the Bible one night. We looked at Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus talks about um, don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about your food. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and I'm going to take care of all that other stuff. And so as a family, we really just, we really believe that that was kind of one of those words for us. And, and I said, look, let's just trust. And I told, told Tevye that night, I was like, I want you to, if you get anything from your parents in your childhood, I hope you, you get that, that seeking God's kingdom first is, is the most important thing. And so that, that first God takes care of the Schroeder's celebration that we had, 
we looked back on that passage, but now we were looking on it with a new set of eyes. We, now we had a year and a half under our belts of seeing how God had really honored his word. How in the midst of all kinds of things that should have taken us down as a family, God came through in miraculous ways. And so a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated God takes care of the Schroeder's Day number two. <laughs> and again, we began to look back on this past year, everything that's happened since then. And, and it's, it's amazing. You, you ought to try this at home. You don't have to have like a special day for it. But just sit around as a family and begin reflecting on how much God has done in your life. And it, it's amazing. When, I mean, like I'd forgot about some of these things. And we started talking and we like realized like, wow. Even through the hard times in this past year, God's been in it. God's been doing things. See, it's my hope that as my kids grow up, that they are formed by this tradition, that it, it shapes the way they view God and, and, and the way that, they, that their worldview, the way that they look at the world, that, that after years of celebrating this, it, it becomes meaningful. Because really, the traditions that we celebrate, they shape us, don't they? Traditions have a way, the things that we celebrate year after year, they have a way of forming our worldview. They have to do with our, 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 our outlook on things. For instance, Dan Nitschke, I, I asked him today to, to come up here and sing, um, I'm Proud to Be an American. Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, say I got somebody, a good singer in here, to sing, I'm proud to be, not, no, no, no slide there. Uh, I got someone in here to sing, I'm proud to be an American, or, or, or the Star Spangled Banner. Who was the, somebody botched the national anthem recently. Did y'all catch that? Christina Aguilera. Like, she forgot words. Like, don't forget words on the national anthem. But uh, the truth is that if you had somebody sing that song, I guarantee there, there are going to be men in here who will get a little tear in, the, in the, the corner of their eye. You can see it at, at football games or baseball games or sporting events that when they start off with the national anthem, saying that they get through with it and don't botch it. But you can look as the camera pans around the crowd. There are certain people standing in that crowd who are just getting all choked up. You know, guys who are 50, 60 years old, and, and they're just getting choked up at the singing of that song. Why? Because that song is tied into tradition. It's, tied in, it's not just tied into patriotism. It's tied into the rhythms of this country. That every Independence Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, we remember the American story. We remember those who fought in the wars. We go back over it. We do patriotic things. It takes us back. to. And, and, and perhaps you, you might even have family who've served or perhaps you're a veteran yourself. So it, it means something. Now, if I just moved here from, say, Australia and I go to a football game and they're singing the national anthem, how much is that going to mean to me? Nothing. I mean, I'm not going to get choked up or teared up. I'm just going to be like, okay, cool. Let's get the game going. But those traditions have formed us. Now, I, I love... Christmas, I, you know, despite all the commercialization and, and all that stuff, I'm not a big fan of Black Friday and stuff, but I love Christmas. I love Christmas lights. I love Christmas music. Mike Manifold doesn't like Christmas music. He came in this morning, and I had Louis Armstrong singing Christmas music, and he's like, ah, humbug. And, uh, but I love Christmas music. Why? But not, not that Christmas music is 
you know, a lot of it's not truly meaningful. You know, a lot of it's just kind of fun. But it ties me into the celebrations of Christmas that I've had over my whole life. I, I, I say all that to say that the scripture that we're looking at today, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that would be kind of like somebody who came in here and said, or the ramparts we watched were gallantly streaming. That's, that's, that's not a saying that you would hear much in your life, but when somebody says that, you know, ah, oh, Star Spangled Banner, right? Everybody knew that? I mean, Christina Aguilera didn't, but, uh, but y'all know that, right? <laughs> uh, there's certain language in our culture that, that if ever used, people would say, oh, that's patriotic. Oh, that's, that's Independence Day kind of language. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus approaching, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I want to read a passage, uh, if you got your Bible, your, your trusty North Shore Vineyard Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. This is, a, this is Matthew's account of John the Baptist's ministry and, and Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.13, is that what I said? Okay, yeah. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. John, the, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, he kind of assumes that a lot of people have heard the story of Jesus. So he doesn't go into a, a lot of the details of Jesus' baptism. But, but we can see even in, in John's version that uh, John the Baptist talks about seeing the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus. Well, that's what we just talked about in Matthew. Now, if you were not here last week, you can check out the podcast. But last week we talked about John the Baptist. The, the religious establishment had send fo- sent folks out to check on him saying, are, are you Elijah? Because there was prophecies that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And he said, no. Are you the prophet like Moses? And, and John the Baptist says, no. Or, well, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. And, well, what do we tell people that you are? He says, I'm just a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the king. Now, Later on, Jesus will say of John the Baptist that there was no prophet in Israel's history like him. He's as good as you get as a prophet. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, prophets, what they did a lot of times, they had the prophetic ministry. They would call the nation to turn to God. That was part of their thing. But part of the prophetic office was that you would anoint people as kings. So... You see Samuel the prophet, he anoints David as king. He puts oil on him and, and symbolizing the Holy Spirit that this is God's person. And so John the Baptist is the greatest prophet who's ever lived. You might suspect that he might be the one who anoints 
the person is the new Messiah, the king, the, the one who's going to be the king who rules in righteousness. But actually, God tells John the Baptist, no, you don't have to anoint this one. I'm going to anoint him. <laughs> I'm going to make it very clear who he's chosen. So John the Baptist says, it says in here that he, he didn't know who the Messiah was. He was just waiting. He was doing his ministry, waiting to see who the Messiah was going to be. And then Jesus comes down to be baptized by him. And as, as soon as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And, and John sees it. And actually in Matthew, John hears it. This is the Messiah. This is the one. And so he's anointed by God. And that, that gets John's attention that, that this is the right one. But it's interesting. The term that's used twice in this text is look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, i got to tell you, my time as a Christian, when I've heard of Jesus referred to as the Lamb of God, it's usually with the understanding that Jesus is, is the Lamb who takes away our sins, but it's kind of from the Old, Old Testament understanding that, that, that under the Old Testament, they would once a year they would take a lamb and they, the priest would lay their hands on it representing the sins of Israel and they would kill this lamb and, and the blood of that lamb would be you know, the propitiation for the sins of, of all of Israel. And that's typically what I've heard when it comes to Jesus is that he's that lamb. You know, he symbolizes the, the atoning work of, of a lamb in the Old Testament. But one thing that we're, you know, we're going to do a, a, a class on how to study the Bible in a few weeks based on how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Anybody ever read that? It's a good book. Um, but one thing that Gordon Fee says in this book, you know, if you want to learn what a, a text in the Bible means, the, the best way to do it is to look at it in context of the book that it's written in. I mean, that might seem like, duh, but that doesn't seem like that to most Christians, it seems like. <laughs> so was Jesus simply the atonement for our sins? Is that what John is saying? Well, actually, we're going to find at the end of the Gospel of John that Jesus is crucified does anybody know when Jesus was crucified? He was crucified during Passover week. And in Passover week, he was actually crucified on the very day that they would kill the lambs, slaughter the lambs in the temple to give them to the families to celebrate Passover. What does that mean? Jesus isn't just like the, the lamb that atones for sins. He's like the Passover lamb. He's the lamb that puts door, blood on the doorpost of the universe. <laughs> that that death that is coming to every one of us passes over us because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, this is important because I, I've seen during most of my journey as a Christian that when it comes to Jesus dying on the cross, a lot of evangelicals just put it as, oh, Jesus died to, to take away your sins, just so to... to to deal with your guilt, that all sin and come short of the glory of God, and, and Jesus came to, to, to cover your sins. And while that is part of the story, the story doesn't end there any more than the story of Israel ended with the Passover lambs in Egypt. What did the Passover lambs do that first Passover in Egypt? Was it the end? Well, it was the end of something, but it was also the beginning so the Passover lamb, that, that provided the blood on the doorpost of the house. The, the, the death passed over them, but it, that wasn't just the good news right there that they didn't die. The good news was that they were leaving slavery on the way to the promised land. 
And I think this is important because a lot of Christians, we just, we just kind of put what Jesus did on the cross to, oh, I'm some, some morning when this life is over, I'll fly away, you know, and I'm going to go to a better place when I die, and I'm just going to kind of circle the wagons and try to, you know, hang on until Jesus comes back. But if Jesus is the Passover lamb, then I, I want to say that what we're living in right now is a new exodus, just the way the children of Israel, after they celebrated the first Passover, it meant, you know, actually, they tell, when God tells them to celebrate the Passover, he says, I want you to take a lamb, and you're going to roast that lamb, and you're going to eat some unleavened bread. You don't have time for the bread to rise, and I want you to eat it with your travel clothes on and your bags packed, because I'm delivering you tomorrow. The Passover was really the defining event that broke the slavery and, and, and led the children of Israel into the new exodus. So if we are people following the Lamb of God, if, if what John the Baptist was getting at right there wasn't just that God wants to, to deal with our sins, our guilt, but actually God wants to start a new thing, if God wants to lead us from slavery to the promised land, then what does that mean for us? Well, I think as Christians, what we can see our promised land is, you can find it in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, another book that John wrote. But, but John writes of a day when heaven and earth will be renewed again, where the new Jerusalem comes down and, and things are, the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our Lord, where God has set things right. That's the day we're heading to. But now we find ourselves in this transitional period. See, the Exodus, if you read the Exodus story, it was a transitional time. It was a time between, I think that's one of your answers today, uh, Bible answer man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Exodus was a transition period between slavery and the promised land. Is it, is it interesting to you that after God takes them out of slavery in Egypt, does all these miracles to deliver them, but he doesn't take them to the promised land like the next day. They take 40 days wandering around in the wilderness. Why that transitional period? Well, God had some plans in that transition. He wanted to reconfigure the way that they lived their life. I mean, think about this real quick. We live in America, right? How old is our country? I, I guess 200 years, officially a little over. Uh, and there were some people here before that that would, you know, we could kind of lump them in. So say, say this country's been around 250 years, if, if not officially that long. But in our country, we have this kind of mentality that if you want to make something of yourself, you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you get it done, right? Like in America, we have this feeling like if... You know, every man is the captain of his own destiny. You can do what you want to do, but you realize that kind of mentality, it's very different from the way most people have experienced the world throughout history. There's not been a whole lot of people that have had that mentality that, oh, I can just do whatever I want to do and succeed. We live that way because we've got 200, 250 years of living with certain opportunities and certain values, and, and, and that's kind of our default psychological worldview in America. We just kind of, that's kind of what everybody thinks. Now, the children of Israel, when they first get to, to Egypt, I mean, there are probably a couple of hundred people that would have been in that family of, of people that would be called Hebrew people. 
maybe a couple hundred, few hundred people. But over the, the next 400 years in Egypt, they, they multiplied to a, a group of about a million, a million and a half people. Now think of what it would be like to live 400 years under slavery. We, we, as a country, we've lived 250 years under prosperity and freedom to choose and all that stuff. But think of what it would be like if your whole identity as a people group, I mean, the whole foundation of your race, your ethnicity of people is built under the domination of slavery. My dad was a slave. My grandfather was a slave. My great-grandfather was a slave. Going all the way back to, to when this whole thing started. God, in taking them out of Egypt, He wants to take Egypt out of them. And taking Egypt out of them is going to take some time. It's a transitional period. And a lot of what we see going on in the wilderness is God is trying to take that slavery mentality off them. They've been in a, in a, in a, in a certain kind of understanding of the world that's very much tied to Egypt's prosperity. Now God is, is trying to, to teach them something else. So what we find in the Exodus is that there's some amazing things that happen there. Number one, it's a time of learning to live by God's presence. You know, the Exodus story, it's phenomenal because it's the first time in the history of, uh, of the world where God's presence actually goes with a group of people. They set up the tabernacle. God would lead them by a pillar of fire during the night, a cloud of smoke. How cool would that be? Like God's just leading you everywhere. You just follow this big fire and, and, and God's presence was in their midst. They had a tabernacle. They had the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence would descend on all that. So they were learning to live by God's presence. What does that mean for us today as people of the new Exodus? Well, as people of the new Exodus, God has given us his Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. How silly would it have been back in the original Exodus story? You know, God is leading you by this pillar of fire at night, by a cloud of smoke in the day, and you're traveling out through this barren wilderness to say, yeah, you know that fire, that cloud that's been leading us? You know, I think I've got a better idea. I'm just going to go out this direction. That would be kind of silly, right? But how silly is it this day in the new Exodus to... Ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our life, the, the direction. See, we are people, uh, what we see in the, in, the, in the, when Jesus is crucified on the cross, one of the accounts in the gospel has that the, the, the very veil in the temple is ripped, torn in two, that there's no separation between us and God anymore. We are invited to live a life that is filled with God's presence, God's Spirit. So to go it on our own now would, would be foolish. The Exodus is a time of learning to live by God's presence. Next, is a, it, it's a time of learning to live by God's provision. And one of the coolest things you see in the Exodus story is that how God took care of the children of Israel. They had manna every day. They could gather up this like continental breakfast that would appear out on the rocks every day, and they make stuff out of it. God would provide water in the middle of the desert. God took care of them. Again, God is trying to break that slavery mentality with them, though. Actually, you can see in Deut Deuteronomy 8, you see God's reasoning behind it. He's like, I led you all these years to humble you, to, to let you know that, that you don't live by bread alone, but you live by your relationship with me. So God is trying to break that mentality. 
that they don't see their well-being as tied to the economy of Egypt, but they see it as tied to their relationship with God. So God makes their clothes hold up for 40 years, their shoes, everything lasts longer. God's providing. It's an amazing time. You know, that, that, that's what we experience as a family, you know, coming over here to start North Shore Vineyard. I, I believe, you know, because after that heart attack I had, I'm like, God, if I was going to have a heart attack, why didn't you let me have it like eight months before when I had health insurance? Like that would have made more sense to me. <laughs> And I felt like what God was trying to show us is that your well-being's not tied to doctors. It's not tied to your insurance program. It's not tied to your 401k. It's tied to your relationship with me. And I want you to see that your life is in my hands. Couldn't you have just told me that, though? (laughs) I wouldn't have believed it. Exactly. Because I'm hard-headed just like the children of Israel. (laughs) The exodus is a time of learning to live by God's presence and God's provision. As we head to that day when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, we're learning to live in a place of His presence right now and His provision right now. The, the, The third thing is it's a time of learning to live under a new king and authority. You know, when they were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they were learning to live as if God was king, not Pharaoh. They had lived for hundreds of years. Pharaoh was king. He was the one who called the shots. They lived to make him happy. Now they're in the desert, and they're living to make God happy, living to, as, as if God is king, as he's their ruler. And the same can be said for you and me today. You know, I'm, I'm, I love that I live in America. I'm... But before I pledge allegiance to America, I pledge allegiance to Jesus. Really, that's the only one that matters, whether you say the pledge or not to the United States of America. I pledge to Jesus. Because there might come a day where following Jesus means it's going to put me at odds with the United States of America. And guess what? I'm choosing Jesus. There may come a day where where following Jesus puts you at, at odds with your job. Well, you got to choose King Jesus. Well, I, I might miss a paycheck. Well, you might miss a paycheck. But trust God as your king. There might come a day where, where following Jesus puts you at odds with your family members. Choose Jesus. You know, back in our study of Philippians, last year we, we spent a, a few months going through the book of Philippians, but there's this term that, that pops up in Philippians. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You see these, these, these phrases throughout the New Testament. Well, you know what? Paul didn't invent that phrase. Well, he kind of did, but he, he took it from a saying that they had in the Roman Empire, that Caesar is Lord and Savior. And so the church in Philippi, part of the reason that, that Paul is writing this letter to them is because they were being persecuted for saying, no, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. That wasn't just like... A, a, a saying of protest, that was treason. That was like, you are saying that Caesar isn't God and that he's not Lord. That's, that's bad news. And so they were being persecuted by that. There may come a day where we're saying Jesus is Lord, puts you at odds with 
with the country. Well, that's okay. You're under a new king. And we're living as if he's king. Even though we haven't seen his kingdom come in his fullness, we're in that new exodus and we are living as kingdom people in the here and now as we wait for it. But the beautiful thing we see about the Exodus is even though they're on their way to the promised land, it's an amazing time of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And the same is true for us as we follow King Jesus, that we can experience the inbreaking of God's kingdom among us. You know, when Jesus was healing people, when he was eating at tables with unreputable guests, When he was feeding the 5,000, what was he doing? He was showing people what it looks like when the kingdom of God shows up. It looks like healing. It looks like reconciliation. It looks like people who are outside of religion getting in on the good news. It looks like a party. (laughs) The same can be said for us as we live in the new exodus, as we experience the life of the kingdom in the here and now. It looks like what it looks like with Jesus. Now, the truth is... Just like the children of Israel, we can, we can opt out of the Exodus. We can opt out of the story. We can just look at what Jesus did as just forgiving my sins so I can go somewhere else when I die. But that's not what God has for us. God's called us to be kingdom people, to, to experience that in the here and now. You know, that's why we, we celebrate communion a lot around here. Um, you know, communion is, it, it's kind of like our Passover feast, <laughs> except we don't have to just celebrate it once a, once a year. We can, we can, we celebrated communion last weekend during worship and two weeks before that. And, 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 you know, every time we celebrate this meal, we are remembering the Passover of Jesus. <laughs> we're remembering what Jesus did and we're letting that form us. We're letting that ground us in the reality that Jesus is the risen King now and, and he's called us out of slavery towards a promised land. So I think as people of the new exodus, these these things that we do here on the weekends, whether it's worshiping God together or or taking communion together or, or feeding the poor together or praying with one another, these are powerful things that keep us grounded in the reality that we are kingdom people on our way to the kingdom. We are kingdom people experiencing the kingdom a little bit right now as we head towards its ultimate fulfillment. You know, if you cease to have times of worship in your life or communion or prayer or gathering with other people, you're likely to forget what the reality really is. You're likely to forget what God's called you to be a part of. So I think some of the questions we can ask ourselves today, you know, that you can, you can kind of reflect on in your own life, you know, where, where am I ignoring God's presence in my life? Where, where am I just going my own way? Sometimes we ignore God's presence because we just don't, <laughs> I'm afraid he's going to say something. I don't want to, you know, I'd, I'd like to ask his opinion on this, but I'm afraid if I do, he's going to tell me something I don't want to hear. God's given us his spirit. Let's listen to him. Let's honor his presence. What about provision? You know, you may be in here today and you are 
absolutely panic because your 401k is like you know, 20% of what it was five years ago. You may be struggling with job security. You may be in, in financial, you know, just dire straits. Remember today that you don't have to worry. Remember today that God has you, even in the midst of this wilderness. God hasn't taken you away from this wilderness, but God can meet you in the midst of this. Turn to Him and trust Him. Remember that God is our ultimate King and authority. Why don't you stand? Lord, this morning we stand as your people. We are just so thankful for all, you've, all you are and all you've done for us, in us, through us. Lord, we thank you that the good news of your sacrifice on the cross, Lord, it, it doesn't just simply end with our sins forgiven. Lord, but you have called us out of slavery to a new exodus, God. You've called us to live the reality of your kingdom, to live as distinctly different people in the midst of this world on our way to the promised land. God, I pray for every person gathered here this morning, God, that you would help us remember what that means. Lord, you'd help us to to not forsake getting together to celebrate communion and to worship and to pray together and to remember uh, the good news together, Lord. Lord, that our identity would be formed by the bread and the wine, the body, the blood. Lord, that you shed that is on the doorpost of our hearts. Lord, that we wouldn't be like people in Egypt who have been passed over who just stay in their houses, Lord, but we would follow you out into the wilderness, God. We would follow you wherever you lead. God, we would learn to live by your presence, by your provision, and by your kingship in our lives, God. We submit ourselves to your work today, to your plans and God, I just pray that, that Covington, Mandeville, God, that, that, that this, this little group of people gathered here at North Shore Vineyard, God, that they would look at us, Lord, and they would see, just like the children of Israel, Lord, that we are people of your presence. Lord, that they would say that God is truly in our midst. Lord, help us to have expectant hearts, God. Help us to, to break out of our trust in the things of this world, God, that we could see you moving, Lord, in all the areas of our lives, God, whether it's healing physically, emotionally, relationally, provision, God, that we would see that. Or we wouldn't settle for the best this world has to offer, God, but we would see you in the midst 
of this wilderness. Lord, help us to live this exodus that you've called us to. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.